Hello my friends, welcome to another uh, episode of the NU Digital Classroom. This is going to be Chapter 5's presentation. We're going to be looking at this idea of the physical and the cognitive aspects of development during this time of childhood. Right during these key school years, what's going on in the development of the brain, primarily of the child, and how does that link to things like this emerging intelligence and language. Alright, let's get into it. Hope you're doing well. Okay, during the physical development, let's start with the start. Let's read the start with the title. Okay, so physical development in childhood. One, some of the things we're going to look at and just make a few comments about kind of more generalized physical stuff, and we'll get to the brain quickly. But during the preschool years, we see that both boys and girls start to slim down as the trunk of the body, right? Like the middle of the body. Think of the trunk as basically not the head or limbs. As the trunk of the body lengthens. Although the head is still somewhat large for the body, by the end of the preschool years, most children have lost most of the kind of top-heavy or, or the kind of bigger head look of babies or that's associated with toddlers. Baby fat also starts the, a slow, steady decline during the preschool years. Um, the chubby face, I made this text smaller so I don't scroll as much. The, I have this, so I'm doing PowerPoint too, just so some of you know, because I know a, I have a bunch of video creating students too, and uh, when you're recording in PowerPoint, you can either do it in slide mode, which is, if you don't have notes, is the best, because you can see yourself, everything's in the right perspective, um, but Note View has it on the side, and there's advantages to that too. The advantage to this mode, this like teleprompter mode, is that it looks more like you're looking at the camera, so it visually is a bit better, I think. And I didn't need to say any of that. During the elementary school years. Okay, here, let me actually put these points up here. Okay, so I already made the point about the, the head size. Okay, just the last couple points. The period of middle and late childhood involves relatively slow, consistent growth, right? Especially when I say the slow, consistent growth, you got to compare it to what became, what came before and what comes after, right? If you view before this period as like the zero to two phase, when there's so much change happening. And then when you also think that this is pre-puberty, right? It's like before puberty. So it's this kind of calm before this huge storm of puberty that's coming in terms of massive growth periods. Yeah, this period of calm before the growth spurt of adolescence. During the elementary school years, children grow an average of um, 5 to 7.5 centimeters a year until the age of 11, where the average child is just under 1.5 meters tall. No, I should have this in feet for you. Uh, muscle mass and strength also increase during these years as baby fat decreases, right? So it's like the baby loses some of the, the chubby cheek kind of thing that's always associated with babies, right? The loose movements and knee knocking of early childhood gives way to more improved muscle tone. Thanks to both heredity and exercise and moving around, children double their strength capacity during these years. Right? It's like, this is such an important thing. It's like, you say like terrible twos, or even like my daughter now, who's like, um, you know, getting up to almost a year and a half. And it's like, why is she like pushing back on everything and like trying to get into everything and trying to climb on everything and constantly going for the thing that we don't want her to go for. And it's like, well, part of it is because she's become like a super athlete. 
It'd be like if I, I took a random person and turned him into a star athlete. It's between during this period that we call terrible twos or this almost two, the the cardiovascular systems, right? The lungs and the heart of the child almost double in strength. So imagine if you, your cardiovascular system, your heart and lungs doubled in strength. It's like you'd be climbing over everything and wanting to test your abilities, right? From, from a biological perspective, it makes sense. Okay. Although physical growth is very obvious, it's the unseen changes in the brain and in the nervous system that are especially significant in preparing kids for the advances that are coming in cognition and in learning uh, language. The increased maturation of the brain combined with opportunities to experience a, a widening social world contributes to the children's, the child's emerging cognitive abilities, right? So it's kind of this combination of things. It's the nature and nurture and the nature is the maturing brain and the nurture is the, the widening social world. Okay, I'm sharing some notes to you, sort of, and freestyling off the notes. Although the brain does not grow as rapidly during childhood as during infancy, it does undergo remarkable changes. By repeatedly obtaining brain scans of the same children for up to four years, researchers have found that a children's brains experience rapid, distinct periods of growth. So now, that's kind of interesting, right? Because that's meaning this idea that the brain isn't necessarily just going like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If like it's going from zero to a hundred and a hundred is completely done growing, it's like actually going like one, two, three, seventeen, twenty-nine. It's like jumping in that's a weird way of explaining it, but it's going in spurts. Right? It's not like in a smooth, continuously consistent linear fashion. The overall size of the brain doesn't increase dramatically from age three to five. But was, what does increase dramatically is the, the amount of connections within the brain. The amount of brain materials in the amount of brain material in some areas can nearly double in as little as a year, followed by then this dramatic loss of tissue as unneeded cells are pruned and the brain continues to reorganize itself, right? So there's this period of like, there's a lot of pruning going on. Have here. This is reminiscent of a sculptor who chips away at unneeded material to produce a refined work of art. From age three to six, the most rapid growth in the brain takes place in the part of the frontal lobe called the prefrontal cortex, right in front of the front, prefrontal. Leading researchers in developmental cognitive neuroscience have proposed that the prefrontal cortex likely orchestrates the function of many other brain regions during development it's like this interesting thing that once the prefrontal cortex is is developed and once it's once all this growth is happening here it's like it's really orchestrating everything else it's like the brain functions better with an excellent conductor and it's like the prefrontal cortex is the conductor orchestrating the the neural development i think that metaphor all all held together decent. Okay, next slide. Total brain volume, so the actual total size of the brain, is pretty stable by the end of late childhood. 
but a lot of the changes that we're talking about are in the changes of like what's actually the brain doing right not just changes in size but changing of of the processes within the brain right and some of the the functions that different aspects and or different regions of the brain brain are playing as children develop activation in some brain areas increases and it decreases in other areas one shift in activation that occurs is from diffuse larger areas to focal smaller areas think of diffuse as spread out focal as focused like laser focused right that's like the opposite of spread out in one study researchers found less diffusion and more focal focal activation in the prefrontal cortex between 7 and 30 years of age this shift in activation is accompanied by an increased efficiency in things like cognitive performance, especially cognitive control, which is like basically paying attention and being able to keep your cognition under your control emotionally too, right? And that ability to maintain control is important in a whole bunch of different functional areas of life, right? Like in areas that actually matter, like can you actually like maintain your composure enough to like get through difficult conversations and can you like focus enough to study and finish the stuff you need to do and can you like work through a bad mood enough to like get through a shift that you don't want to do at your part-time job that you need to do to make money to pay for you know it's like a big part of being a successful person is cognitive control like a better word almost for that or a more commonplace word would be like discipline being steadfast I always thought that was an amazing word. It's like difficult for the wind to move. Okay. Anyways, I don't know. <laughs> Steadfast isn't in my note. That was freestyled. Okay. Next slide. Okay. In addition to changes in patterns of activation, myelination occurs throughout childhood. So remember, you remember me talking about myelination as if like we're talking about a cord right and the cord has like the wire inside the cord but then it has the plastic on the outside so it can like if this isn't plugged into anything but say it was plugged in and, and it well it wouldn't be holding it like this if it didn't have the plastic on it right so it's like and if it was touching it would be problematic and so myelination is like what i'm trying to say is myelination is like the plastic on the outside the protective coating <clears throat> It's like literally a fat it's like a fatty substance and so this is continuing throughout childhood right and it's part of like the brain getting stronger and more mature is that these new um, pathways are forming and unused ones are getting pruned out and the ones that are becoming successful are going to start getting myelinated right hardwired basically Recall that myelination is a process by which axons, nerve fiber, which are nerve fiber. Uh, let me start that sentence again, because I have like a bracket within the sentence. Recall that myelination is the process by which axons, here comes definition for axons, nerve, fi nerve fibers that carry away signals from the cell body, unbracket. So recall that myelination is a process by which axons are covered with a layer of fat cells which increases the speed and efficiency of information traveling through the nervous system so that as these messages are sending through like the nervous system through and into the brain it's like the ones that are getting used over and over again get hardwired or myelinated is the word 
Myelination is important in the development of a number of abilities, but the timing of myelination varies across the brain regions. For example, myelination in the area of the brain related to eye-hand coordination is not complete until about four years of age. Okay, but then myelination in areas related to things like focusing attention isn't complete until like later in childhood middle to late childhood. Myelination in aspects of the prefrontal cortex isn't complete until like adolescence, late adolescence, maybe even emerging adulthood, right? You hear about how like an adolescent's not as good as at like, um, maybe takes more risks and stuff like that. And, and you've heard me say this, that the main reason for that is because the prefrontal cortex areas that are associated with like weighing consequences of those risks aren't fully developed until like 22, 23, 24, 25-ish. And when we're saying not fully developed in that sense, we're like literally saying not fully myelinated. All right, so we're, we just, in our common speech, tend to talk about like the brain development. But what I'm kind of saying is the brain's developing and those connections are developing and then the good ones are getting wired, basically. Myelinated, protected. So another big thing that's happening, right, is children are um, developing this like physical ability to move to such a level that they couldn't before. By the time a kid's three, they're starting to enjoy a lot of simple movements and it's giving them a lot of accomplishment and pride. And later in this class, we'll talk about, you know, these ideas of how the baby develops industry and an initiative, right? Those are the, the next two Erickson stages. And think of what that means, right? Like that the kid is like starting to become their own person. They're starting to like show themselves that they can choose to do things and do it and have an effect on the world, which is initiative. And that they can also like accomplish tasks, which is industry. And that this gives them a sense of accomplishment. By four, kids are still enjoying similar activities, but they're becoming much more adventurous, right? Both physically and cognitively. By middle and late childhood, children's motor skills become more smooth and more coordinated, right? But when we say that, what we're really talking about is this myelination of these connections, right? These, these connections between the brain and the, and the limbs is improving, right? The connection between the brain and the feet is a very, very long distance to connection, Right, one of the reasons it takes a long time to learn to walk. It's like that's one of the most complex connections that's going to form in the child. All right. So with gross motor skills on the last slide, if that kind of meant like um, more big and it's weird, right? That like the word gross in English is weird that sometimes we use it to mean huge. Like that's a gross overestimation. Right? That's a huge overestimation. Uh, you know, usually gross means like disgusting or whatever. But in that sense, it means like big things like jumping, running, all that. In contrast, fine motor skills means like basically tool manipulation. Right. And I have the picture of the girl there helping her dad with the car. The point is that. Well, by the time she's five, her eye hand is getting much better, right? So she's probably able to participate. That girl's older than five, but by five, she's like able to like help dad a bit. 
her as she gets older her fine motor skills are getting better and better as that myelination that we were talking about in the central nervous system is getting stronger and stronger and stronger right as those connections that go all the way up to the brain as they're getting myelinated as they're getting hardwired and used again and again it's like she's getting we would just say from like a more simple perspective we would just say she's getting better with her hands she's getting better with her ability to manipulate things right by the time she's 12 she's able to hold that tool and work on that tire if that if she's been taught how to do it properly with like kind of like adult level dexterity so it's pretty interesting right that like getting as humans as we're getting older our ability to walk around and our ability to use our hands and our ability to use complex tools and our ability to like hold a pen and write it's it's just deep deep increasingly complex relationship between our brain and our body right that our, our brain is learning that our those are brain connections that are allowing that and you see that in the most dramatic way with people that have had like an acquired brain injury and then struggle to do certain tasks and you really see this struggle between the messaging system and the thing that does the message right like so the messaging system being the brain and the thing doing the message being like the body part that the brain's sending the message to so in today's lecture we're going to talk a little bit about um Piaget and also the development of IQ testing because Piaget is interestingly connected to it and he was working with a guy named Theodore Simon who I'm going to show you some stuff about in a second right and so Simon and another guy named Bennett so Simon and Bennett created this uh, test that you recognize as IQ Right, and one thing that's really interesting is that when Simon's developing it, and I have a slide coming up on it later, when I'm going to say that basically he's like doing it for the French military because they're trying to determine who's advanced enough to be worth developing into soldiers and who's not. And so the IQ test is designed to develop a, a quick way to measure if people are kind of worth investing in as potential soldiers, right? This is in like 1904 in France. And so the Simon guy is hired to develop these questions, right? So he's asking these questions to like people of all different ages and trying to like figure out like what's the kind of average amount of right answers for the different ages. Because you can see IQs like relative to age. And so what's really interesting is that Piaget was working for him, right? And Piaget was actually hired to write down the answers that people got, said when they were wrong. Right, so say you answer the one question and you get it wrong, but I'm not just interested that you got it wrong. I want to know how you got it wrong, because then I start to notice that well, a lot of people said that same kind of error, right? That people aren't random in their errors, that there's actually people tend to get questions wrong in similar ways. And it, the age the person is seems to have an impact on how they get things wrong. So let me say that again it's like piaget's point was basically like how old you were seemed to shape if you were to get it wrong the type of way you would get it wrong like the type of logical error you would make almost as if different ages had different levels of development right and this you can see how this 
leads to Piaget down the road to think that like people are qualitatively treating information differently based on their age, right? That like a, a three-year-old and an eight-year-old are like literally using different levels of cognitive development to process their world. He developed this idea by seeing how people were getting the answers wrong with the IQ test, right? Sort of interesting. So anyway, so Piaget thought that kids lived in, and if you remember the stage right before was sensory motor, where he was saying that like most of the child's experience of the world is through the senses and through moving around and, and engaging the world that way. But that at this stage, he calls this pre-operational, right? And think of operations as like, being able to do operations and, and manipulate calculations is another word sort of in the head and process and move around information and I'll show you some examples but the idea is that this is pre that the child's not at that operational stage yet which is going to be the next stage the children's representing the world with words and with images and with drawings and they're starting to form more stable concepts being able to start to develop reasoning right like so reasoning means like well, this happened and that made this happen. What would, what's the reason? What's the explanation, right? So your reasoning is like your ability to make sense of things, to understand the reason for things. And that reasoning skill is, is still in a developmental stage. Okay, so I have two words for you here. The first one is centration. So let's just say like I made this point to you, right? That like, the child's now in this specific stage. We're gonna call this stage pre-operational and it's significantly different than the next stage, which is operational. And one of you say, we're doing this live, puts your hand up and you say, okay, well, Mike, give me three reasons why it's different. I say, perfect, I have the perfectly made slide for you. This is becoming a kind of lame example, but okay. So then I, I say, okay, there's three things. I wanna talk about egocentrism, animism, and uh and conservation so this first idea i want to talk about is what egocentrism is that this stage this pre-operational stage is really defined by this tendency towards only being able to see things from your own perspective and this isn't in like a sense of the kids arrogant or something like that it means that their developing mind has a difficulty still in understanding that other people have perspectives and opinions on things that are different than their own so one way that they show this so remember ego means like that part of me that's me centrism means focusing on your attention on one thing over others it's like this tendency to see things from our perspective to the exclusion of other people's perspective and some of that's like completely obvious right you're like obviously a single person with a single set of eyes and a single film of memory or whatever and it's like obviously there's a part of your life that feels like it's you but the point here is that there's an age at which children are, are significantly worse at understanding that they have their own unique perspective and one way you can show this is by this thing here that's called the three mountain task right three mountain task a child walks around a table with a model of mountains and becomes familiar with what the mountain looks like from different perspectives they can see that there's different objects on the mountains. The child's then seated on one side of the mountain. An experimenter moves a doll to different locations around the table, and at each location asks the child to select from a series of photos the one that they think most accurately reflects the view that the doll's seeing. 
Children in a pre-operational stage will often pick their own view rather than the dolls. Right, so you, you take the kid, you sit them in all the four spots around, and it shows there like what it would look like from view A, B, C, D. Then you sit them in one, and you take a doll, and you sit it in a different chair, and ask them what the doll sees. And what you're looking for is, do they explain what that doll's view really would be, or the, do they just tell you their view? Right? Are they failing to, to notice that that doll would be seeing things differently than them? And then what you would find if you were to do this experiment is once kids get to a certain age, some of them don't fall for this. And then once they get to a certain age, none of them are falling for this. Right. So this is one of these points that this is kind of this egocentrism is a characteristic of the pre-operational stage of development. So it's kind of neat, I think, just the language here, because I have in the note, animism. It's like, uh, think of the word anim inanimate, meaning not alive, and animate, meaning alive, basically, right? And you can see, like, and you can see how the word, like, animation comes from there. You can even see how the word, like, animal is related. But it's this idea of life. It's this idea of, like, kids often... Uh, well, I have here as an example, animism explains why a four-year-old might get angry at a swing that hits them and why they believe that their doll has feelings. It's considered, a, oh, we're saying about the interesting thing about language. I have here, it's written as a, it's considered a limitation of pre-operational thought. So one of the limitations of this stage, just kind of like how the last slide was about the limitation of taking that perspective, Another one of the limitations is this belief that inanimate objects have lifelike qualities and are capable of action. Right? And it's like they might not actually believe that, but it's like this way of thinking, sort of. Okay, so the first two. So I'm saying three, right? So if, if I say like the first one is the idea around the three mountain test and egocentrism. And then the second one is around the animism. And then this one, if you look at this kid, right? And you see these two things of orange juice and you pour one into the big tall cup and then you ask him, which one is more? Can he do like the backwards math and be like, well, okay, it looks like it's more in the big tall cup. But if I was to pour it back into the small one, they'd be the exact same. Can, can you do that kind of what Piaget called conservation? <clears throat> this beaker test is a well-known Piaget, Piaget test to determine whether a child can think operationally or whether the child can reverse actions and show the conservation of a substance. Two identical beakers, A and B, are presented to the child. Then the experimenter pours the liquid from B into C, which is a taller and thinner than A or B. The child is then asked which of these beakers, A or C, um, no, whether these beakers have the same amount of liquid. A pre-operational child will often say no. When asked to point to the one that has more, the pre-operational child will often point to the tall, thin beaker. Okay, in Piaget theory, failing the conservation of liquid task is a sign that a child's at a pre-operational stage of cognitive development and may have an inability to reverse these mental actions. In addition to failing conversion volume, right? So like 
that just means in addition to like this kind of mistake around volume of liquid children also fail to con conserve uh, numbers matter matter length area i'm going to show you some examples on the next slide so he's just saying that like this can happen in different types of tasks than just this liquid liquid one indeed the label pre-operational emphasizes that the child does not yet perform operations which are reversible mental actions that allow children to do mentally what they could not do physically right so think about that it's like can you pour it into the bigger one and then sort of in your mind pour it back and be like yeah it'd still be the same so therefore like can you do that all mentally interestingly to find definition operations here is reversible mental actions that allow children to do mentally what they could only do physically can you do it in your head So you see an example of this, three examples of this here, right? So let's start at the top one. The numbers, two identical rows of objects are shown to the child who agrees that they have the same number, right? This is an important part of this. It's not just an optical illusion. You want to show the kid first that they're the same and then see if this slight uh, deception actually works. Then one is just lengthened. One row is lengthened. So you see they're just spread out more. The child's asked whether uh, one row has more objects. Yes. The longer row has more, right? The top row has got to be more, covers more space. You see how you're falling for that simple thing. It's, it's still obviously only four. So that's related to numbers. Related to matter, two identical balls of clay are shown to a child. The child agrees that they're equal. The experimenter changes the shape of one of the balls and asks the child whether they still contain equal amounts of clay. No, the longer one has more. So see how the child, again, is just being kind of, you see at the top, uh, the left there, the or sorry, the extreme right. That column is the pre-operational child's answer. Length. Two sticks are aligned in front of the child. The child agrees of the same length. The experimenter moves one stick to the right and asks the child if they're equal length. No, the top one's longer. So notice how to like, to all you adults, this is like so simple. It's like maybe mind-numbingly simple. Like obviously, that's just like a slight, visual trick but that's because you can very easily look at those two sticks and move the top one back a bit to the left in your mind and be like yeah that'd be basically the exact same you're past this stage right so it's like Piaget's point is that like okay yeah fine but you weren't always past this stage So this, this diagram is called what characteristics of pre-operational thought do children demonstrate when they fail these conversion tasks? Right, these errors and how they're reading the situation and Piaget's idea, it's because they're not as good yet at kind of doing it backwards. Being like, well, it just was the same. So it must still be the same. Sorry if you're missing my bald head. I uh, turned it off a couple slides ago so that it wasn't covering the picture and I, I forgot to put it back on, but nice to see you. Okay, so Vykovsky, like one of the most famous Russian psychologists easily and someone that a couple of you did projects on. He was a social constructivist, but in a very specific way. Um, terms like that get used a lot now, but like he was, 
he thought that learning was constructed. That's how he was constructivist. So like Piaget, he thought that there was a social constructive aspect of learning and that social context of learning and the construction of knowledge came through our social interactions, right? We learned in a social setting. In Vygotsky's view, children's cognitive development depended on the tools that were provided to them by their society, right? Like what quality of the learning environment was, their minds are shaped by the cultural contexts in which they live. Vygotsky believed in the uh, importance of social influences on a child's development. And this is reflected in his context or in his concept of the zone of proximal development, right? It's basically this idea that like you have what you could do and then you have what you could do with help. And that even if you're say a good student, it's like, okay, well, if you're a good student under the tutelage of the best teacher in the world, you could be an even better student. So there's like what you can be by yourself and what you could be in the best possible learning environment and those aren't the same and the gap between those is the zone of proximal development tasks that are too difficult for you to do alone but you could do and so Vykosky thought if you're going to be training people and teaching people it's important to focus on those two two different definitions right there's like what you could do what the top level of what you could do by yourself would be the lower limit of the ZPD, right? The level of skill reached by a child working independently. There's a certain amount that my daughter can read on her own that's at her highest level, but if I'm helping her with the hard words, she can read even more. And so the idea is to aim at that upper level. In ZPD or in, in this idea of zone of proximal development, right? That it's just understanding this and I know a zone of proximal development, proximal zone of development is maybe an easier way of saying it. And proximity just means like how big is that gap between or, or understanding that gap, right? Proximity is like a distance related word. Like right now, my proximity to the camera is further away and now it's closer. It's like that was a dumb example, but that's that is what proximity means. In ZPD uh, is Wyckowski's term for the range of tasks that are too difficult for a child to master alone, but can with learned guidance and the assistance of adults or more skilled children. Thus, the lower limit of ZPD is the level of skill reached by a child working independently, and the upper level is the ability a child can reach with, a, um, with an able instructor. The ZPD idea captures the child's cognitive skills that are in the process of maturing and can be accomplished only with the assistance of a more skilled person. Right, so Vykovsky thought that basically you can do better in certain environments, that the learning environment was super important, and that the more that you understood that and the more I understand you as the student, and the more I aim your instruction at your highest, at your, the upper limit of your ZPD, then that's when we're going to be in a scenario where you might actually reach optimal levels of, of performance. Closely linked to the idea of ZPD is the concept of scaffolding, right? So if you'll remember, I, I said here introduced earlier in the context of parent-infant interactions, because I had made this point before about scaffolding, that the parents providing scaffolding for the developing child's mind and just to give a, a picture of what scaffolding is, right? Like you see there, it's like they're building a building and to build the building, they have to almost create a, a temporary structure around the, 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 
the main building. So say you're wanting to add a third level or you're wanting to add some big thing on the outside. You can't just stand in the air and add it, right? You have to build something that you stand on while you're doing it. And it's almost like in this metaphor, it's like the helper or the teachers providing the scaffolding for the learning experience of the students so that at one point, the student who I guess is the building in this example, the scaffolding can be pulled away and the kid can just read or can just ride their bike or can just whatever perform the sport thing. It's like they've been in a learning environment that supported their growth to the point that they can do it themselves. Closely linked to this idea of ZPD is the concept of scaffolding. Introduced earlier, yeah. Scaffolding means changing the level of support, right? So here's the other point is that like that scaffolding as the building's getting higher and higher, the scaffolding's getting higher and higher and higher too, right? It's growing with the building. Over the course of a teaching session, a more skilled person adjusts the amount of guidance that the child to fit the child's current performance. When a child's learning a new task, the skilled person might use really direct instruction, but as the child's getting better and better, less guidance is given. Right. So the idea is like and you could think of that as like, say, you're coaching hockey and you're teaching the kids how to actually play. And you're like really instructing a lot and a lot. And as the kids are getting older and getting better, you're like you're maybe interrupting their play less and less. And you're just giving fine pointers. And yeah, as the teaching is progressing, that guidance is continually aimed at increasing performance and as they're getting better, that less and less guidance is given in like a just straight up instruction way. One study found that in scaffolding techniques that heighten engagement, encourage direct exploration and facilitated sense making such as guided play improved four and five year olds ability to do geometry. That's kind of a weird just additional point, right? This study by a guy named Fisher in 2013 found that if you teach kids math and you do it in a way where they're like applying it to all these situations and they, they find it that it's like meaningful and it's in using these scaffolding techniques, they found significant improvements. So that's just sort of an example of from the literature where they, they show the effectiveness of, of this type of approach. But this is going to be true in like non-academic settings too, like especially sports or music training or anything like that. Okay, so then if you look at Vykovsky's idea here, right? So let's just like go one more slide on Vykovsky. Who's the person in the picture there? He's saying that basically, okay, for me to help you, I need to do four things. First of all, I need to know exactly where you're at. And I need to assess this idea, right, of, of your upper and lower levels. Like, what could you do on your own? And what's kind of the best writer that you can be? as you just being a writer by yourself. And then if you were in a scenario where you're being trained and, and developed in the most ideal training setting possible, right? How good could you be? And then I sort of try to aim towards that upper level, right? Use the child's ZPD in teaching. Teaching begins near the, the upper zone. You're trying to aim towards where, where their developmental potential lies. And you're trying to use skilled peers, right? So this is the other interesting thing is that say it's like oops just ripped out the headphones let's say that you're like trying to teach a kid um how to read it's one of the reasons why reading buddies are so effective right that have you have if i'm trying to teach a kid my one my grade one daughter how to read the gap between us is so huge but a grade three kid 
is like a really good reader for a grade one because reading buddy because they read in a similar way just better so they're modeling the next step right and and that's why that can be sometimes so effective so sometimes yeah using skilled peers is a huge part that's a huge part in like sports and stuff too it's like once you it's like a coach is important but there can be a, a lot of leadership and teaching and facilitating of growth within the team too right like i mean like if you have your good players helping the, the weaker players and stuff it's like there's a huge ability of peer level influence here so this it's kind of interesting right it's like saying well one of the best ways to be a good teacher is to be good at using and fostering and initiating support amongst the students and then the last one that the people are going to just learn more and it's going to be more engaging if it's in a in a scenario that is felt as meaningful provide chances to experience learning in real world settings right so if you can make it meaningful if you can aim the intervention or if you can aim your help at this kind of upper zone of their ZPD, which first you have to access it. And then if you can have skilled peers that can model the next step, then you're putting in the kid in the scenario for potential to potentially reach their potential. Piaget and Vykovsky provided us theories about how children think and how their thinking changes with age. But more recently, some of these information processing theories and approaches, so kind of cognitive psychology, have generated research that illuminates how a child's ability to process information changes through childhood. We'll focus here on three aspects of information processing, attention, memory, and executive function. The child's, so in, over the next little bit, okay, so we're gonna talk a little bit about attention and then memory and then executive function. And just in case I forget to say it, you might notice I dropped a couple of the memory slides just cause it kinda, um, so in your student file, you might have a couple slides coming up that I skipped just because it's a little bit of a repeat of something I've already said. And I didn't really notice until I was about to present on it. So you just already have that information. A child's ability to pay attention improves significantly during the preschool years. A toddler wanders around, shifts attention from one activity to another, and seems to spend little time focused on one thing. But by the time a child reaches middle childhood, they're able to sustain attention for much longer. In addition to age-related changes in attention, there's also huge individual differences. It's interesting to think that, um, okay, so if you look at attention, right, as this ability to basically aim your mental resources, to focus your mental resources on something specific. Like if I'm like, pay attention to this presentation, I'm like looking at you at home and I'm like, pay attention. It's like, you kind of know that I mean, like, look at the screen, pay attention to what, what's being focused on. Stop thinking about other things. So that's kind of the idea that attention is interesting because it's both focusing and blocking distractions. The ability to pay attention improves significantly during the preschool years, especially in two main ways. How you use the attention, right? Like your ability to actually use your attention. It's called executive attention to plan things and to work towards goals and to, to kind of evaluate your progress on tasks or to deal with new situations. It's like... You know, if, you, if you're going into a scary situation, you're definitely going to be paying attention, right? You're like ready to figure out what you're going to do. It's there's that kind of paying attention. And then there's sustained attention, 
sometimes called in the literature vigilance like vigilance like how long can you stay stuck stuck to it like how long can you sustain attention how long can you stay focused is another way to say it so there's kind of like how intense is your focus and how how much endurance do you have with your focus and those are sort of like two really important variables that are that are changing during this time in life during this childhood as the kid is getting older okay so i thought you'd find this is kind of a weird example but it's a good example in a way it's like okay if we're looking at how a preschool child's control of attention is still deficient compared to like an older kids one dimension is in how much salient information oh it's too bad i have my bigfoot mask here I, for halloween this year i had my wife last year for christmas for some reason she knows i always joke about bigfoot it's like she got me like a full body bigfoot suit it's like awesome it's like got the head and the, the feet and the arms and and the hands i mean and like the full body but anyways if i was to like duck down and then come back up on camera in my bigfoot suit you'd like all notice right but if i was to like duck down and come back up with like a slightly different black hoodie you probably wouldn't notice it's like switching black hoodies isn't a salient difference super noticeable the most noticeable thing in the room right whereas like if i change into a bigfoot costume that obviously would be salient so why am i talking about this it's like well if you have kids and you're like okay there's someone going to come in here and tell you the task that they're about to do okay and then whoever once you're told the task you got to do it and you know however quickly you do it you win a prize or whatever and then the person that comes in to tell the information is dressed up as like a funny looking clown and tells the instructions and then the clown leaves and it's like well the little kids are likely to to have been so distracted by the uniqueness of the clown that they sort of miss the important information right so what's that meaning it's meaning that like the intensity of the situation hurt their ability to focus in on what's important for example in this this reason i have a clown on the page there for an example in an experiment a flashy clown is presented and gives directions for solving a problem preschool children are likely to pay more attention to the clown than to the directions <clears throat> however after about six or seven children will attend more efficiently to the demonstration of the tasks or the dimensions of the tasks that are relevant such as paying directions paying attention to the directions for solving the problems right it's like as the kids getting older they're able to be less impulsive they're able to be more reflective they're able to give more conscious attention right so the study was basically just saying like how much are you influenced by the distracting presenter and that as kids get older they're less influenced by that right so if you were like to come in yeah so i think you get the point i don't need to give a different less good example but yeah it's just basically that idea that the salience overwhelms the relevancy the newness overwhelms the what's important and then the other way where it can be deficient is in planfulness when experimenters ask children to judge whether <clears throat> excuse me two complex pictures are the same a preschool children will often use a kind of haphazard comparison strategy like look at is the tree the same is this the same is whereas elementary school kids so older kids will be much more systematic like going okay look at the top left and the left left and this is like it's like scanning it differently right they're doing it differently there's much more plan with the older kid 
right, to elementary school children is much more likely to systematically compare details across pictures one at a time. Okay, this is the same. This is right. Whereas the younger kids more likely to just kind of hope by chance, like the word I had there was haphazard, a haphazard comparison strategy. So again, to go back to the beginning of the slide, the main difference in attention between kids and uh, kids that are a little bit older is in how much they're able to basically stick to focusing on what's important and how much are they able to kind of make a plan and stick to that plan because think about how like scanning between two pictures to find the differences is like demanding a certain amount of attention and sustained attention and kind of all these things we've been discussing so as the child's getting older which as i say that i realize i say that like I guess as developmental psychology, as the child's getting older, is like a classic scene change segue. Because that's what we're talking about, that as this kid's getting older, they're developing their sense of who they are, right? And their sense of who they are is, just like it is with you, really connected with their sense of the story of their life, right? And way later in this, in the second half of the course in the uh, CHSF 2107 when we're talking about later in life and we're talking about things like Alzheimer's and how one of the devastating aspects of Alzheimer's is that people can start to forget who they are, right? And you know that, but like, I mean that at the deepest level that so much of who we are and who we are relationally is it lives in our memories, right? Like how much of my marriage in my mind is my memories of things I've done with my wife and things we've been through and like what when I start if I was to start forgetting all of that like it's like I'm forgetting parts of my autobiographical self you can see how this sense of self right sense of self is an interesting thing it's like, well, what's self? What's self? What's identity? It's almost like, well, yourself. There's something that has an identity, and that's what yourself is. And that your idea about who you are is not necessarily who you truly are. The idea about who you are is like your identity, and what has the idea is the self. It's a bigger concept. Identity is a part of self. And that is not directly, I guess it is related to this because it's like the kids starting to figure out who they are. And part of figuring out who you are is learning the story of who you are. And part of learning the story of who you are is like remembering things. And that's how I got going on this rant. That like that, that memory in this autobiographical right like think of what autobiography is is like if i wrote a book about my life that's an autobiography a book about me written by me it's like well some of your memories are about your experience and one of the reasons why that you don't remember a lot from when you're between zero and two and probably don't remember anything if we're being honest is because you weren't processing the world in a way that was going to lend towards the formation of memory because memory is very thought-based now some of you might remember like sounds or, or whatever like it's, it'd be interesting if it's interesting because the memory is 
the people report earlier ones are often sensory, but again, it's... One of the ideas of why we don't remember the early years of life is because we're largely pre, pre-thought at that stage. Right? We're like literally, in, to use Piaget's words, we're in this sensory motor stage, we're in a, a much more dreamlike mind. And that part of becoming like, coming out of that is like starting to build this story of who we are. Developing this sense of self requires building a story of one's life or this autobiography based on the memories of significant things and experiences that we've been through. It's my film, right, of like what, I, what I've been through and the good and the bad, the good, the bad and the ugly. It's like a epic Western movie. All right. So this is this is kind of interesting. Fuzzy trace theory, or this idea that like we kind of remember, we have like these fuzzy traces of the firing that initially happened when we experienced or saw or whatever, and that somehow we can remember that. This fuzzy trace theory states that memory is best understood by considering two types of representations. Number one, sometimes memory is like very verbatim memory trace. Right, like you remember specifically what was said, you remember specifically what you saw, it's very specific. And sometimes it's more gist, like you remember sort of what the story was about, even though you don't, I could tell you what the Matrix movies were about, but it, I might not remember the specific words that people used, but I could tell you like the general stories. Right, whereas verbatim memory consists of the precise details of the information, gist refers to the central idea right the kind of like the essence the gist it's like if you're like oh let me tell you about harry potter and you go in the first sentence of the first book and you're like i'm like okay well this sounds like you're gonna be a little bit too specific just give me the gist like just okay so it's a story about this sorcerer who it's basically like a good versus evil thing and there's all these different dimensions and there's this whole mythology and blah 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 you could tell me like kind of the central idea Although individuals of all ages extract gist, which is a weird, <laughs> it's like, even extract gist, what that means, well, it's interesting, right? It's like thinking that's what your brain's, part of what your brain's doing is like, pulling out the meaningful thing from things, extracting gist, I don't know, it seems like a weird saying, but it's actually incredibly, uh, accurate and useful really the more i think about it you're going around extracting gist or finding the essence in things young children tend to store and retrieve verbatim traces at some point though during the elementary school years children to begin to use gist more and more right so it's interesting like as the kids getting older and smarter <clears throat> if their thinking's just a little bit less black and white they're not necessarily learning that you know two plus two is four they're trying to understand that x could be a variety of numbers in different scenarios Right, so I'm just basically saying it's like becoming a little bit more gray area, they're thinking. This continues to the improved memory and reasoning of older children. And one of the things is that like, well, they think that just memory is more robust and more durable and more enduring is the word, right? Enduring, meaning like staying over time to endure. Um, 
and that verbatim things are more easily forgotten. Right? So it's like, say me and you have a conversation and it's like in that conversation, I, did, I somehow like said something that made it feel like I like offended your point, right? And you'll like remember that, that, that I did that, that the gist of that conversation for a long time. You might forget the specific word. Let's use a funner example. Let's say that we had a conversation. I made an amazing joke and you'll remember like the joke was about something. You remember what it was about, but you maybe forget the exact delivery. It's like, well, that's kind of common, right? Like we're more likely to remember the gist than verbatim memory. So then in addition to attention and memory, the last one I wanted to talk about here in terms of these changes is these changes in executive function, right? So you can think of executive, the executive is like the president. So executive function would mean like the decision-making aspect of your brain, right? You have all these processes going on, but there's like a, a central decision-making aspect um, that we, you could call kind of like your conscious mind, your working memory. Uh, Diamond, Adele Diamond and Kathleen Lee, this is in research from 2011 at the University of British Columbia, highlighted the following dimensions of executive function that they conclude are the most important for the development of kids between four and 10 and 11, sorry, uh, self-control, working memory, and flexibility, right? So they're saying like for kids between four and 10, so basically school age, one of the biggest things for like their performance is gonna be like, first of all, can they control themselves? And some of that's gonna be like paying attention and some of that's gonna be emotional. Children need to develop self-control that will allow them to concentrate on and pertain to learning tasks, to inhibit their tendency to repeat incorrect responses and to resist impulses to do something that they would later regret, right? So inhibition means like also, and there's a good part of inhibition, right? Because we think of inhibition as like a bad thing, like we're inhibited or not allowed to do something, but me like checking my Facebook quick or whatever on my phone. I don't know. That was a weird example. But like me not doing that is inhibiting that, right? Like me not breaking attention. So that's the kind of point I was making before is that self-control and inhibition. It's like, it's not just me paying attention. It's me paying attention and also resisting, inhibiting the urge to do other things and think about other things and pay attention to different things. It's like focusing the scope and also not looking away. So that one area of self-control, the second area of working memory, that children need an effective working memory, right? So this is like where a lot of the processing is happening to work with the masses of information they'll encounter as they go through school and beyond. <clears throat> and then flexibility, to be able to be flexible in their thinking, be able to apply different strategies and different perspectives, right? So this idea from uh, Lee and what was the other lady's name? Diamond and Lee is basically saying that like what really influences school age kids performance is their ability to show self-control right and a lot of that is related to attention their ability to use their working memory and process information effectively and then their ability to kind of roll with the situational things and be adaptable or flexible so they were highlighted these these dimensions are the most important for four to 10 year olds cognitive development and school success. Right, so in my note here I have why these three things matter. Well, because they're huge for the development of the brain of the child and for them to be successful at school. Okay.
critical thinking and or sorry here I'll say thinking is manip this is a good definition if you want that thinking is the manipulation and transforming of information and memory right that's what thinking is like you're thinking about things and sometimes when you're thinking about things you're like playing with or manipulating ideas and sometimes you're like transforming ideas and you're like thinking about them you're like playing with information in your working memory there's two aspects of thinking that are interesting and that develop at this time and the first one's critical thinking right and critical thinking in the traditional sense of meaning that like you're not just blindly agreeing with everything people tell you and you're not just parroting back what your society says you're supposed to think like you're like you're an infant critical thinking involves reflectively and productively or thinking reflectively and productively and evaluating evidence and that deep understandings occur when students are stimulated to rethink previously previously held ideas in their view in the views of the researchers here schools spend too much time getting students to give a single correct answer in some kind of imitative way like tell me back what i told you rather than encouraging them to expand their thinking by coming up with new ideas or maybe rethinking earlier conclusions often teachers ask students to recite and define and describe and state and list rather than to analyze or infer or connect or synthesize or criticize or create or evaluate or think or rethink. Many students successfully complete their assignments, do well on tests, get good grades, but don't really ever learn how to think critically. How to evaluate, like, is this person lying or not? They think more superficially, stating the surface or staying on the surface of the problem rather than stretching their minds and becoming deeply engaged in meaningful thinking so another thing i wanted to mention is that as the kids as the kids getting older my segue i'll use a million times they're also being asked to be more creative in their thinking right and sometimes it's convergent and sometimes it's divergent and i always use this example right think of like multiple stream or rivers that all lead to one big river they all converge and then think of maybe later down on that big river, it diverges back into small streams, right? So converge means to come together, diverge means to splinter out. Creative thinking is the ability to think in novel and unusual ways and come up with unique solutions to problems. Thus, intelligence and creativity are not the same thing. This difference was recognized by J.P. Gulford in 1967 when he distinguished between convergent thinking, which produces one correct answer and characterizes the kind of thinking that's required on most conventional intelligence tests, and then divergent thinking, which produces different answers to the same question and characterizes creativity. All right, so say if I was to ask you, like, was Freud important to the history of psychology? And was he in, oh, so let me ask more basic question was Freud a net positive to the history of psychology and then I say all of you answer it and it's like you give me such varieties of answers it's like that kind of a question would encourage divergent thinking I hope that like an assignment like John's of psychology encouraged divergent thinking in a way I hope that if nothing else you feel with that with me as your teacher that you can like hopefully say what you think on stuff and kids that I put at this last point is like it's important to recognize that kids will show more creativity in some domains than others, right? You might have kids that are really creative in their writing, but they're not really creative in other ways. They're really creative with their art, or really creative on the sport field. They're really creative with music, right? Creativity isn't necessarily a blanket thing that goes across spectrums.
Although it does for some really gifted people. A lot of times kids will show higher and lower levels of creativity in different things. Metacognition is cognition about cognition. Knowing about knowing. Thinking about thinking. Remembering about remembering. No, that doesn't work as well. Many studies classified medic metacognitive, right? Meta means like above cognition. It's like if I asked you if, you if you're ready for your test tomorrow and you're like, oh, I don't think I've studied enough. Well, what do you mean? You're like doing like an assessment of your own knowledge of the topic, right? You're like thinking about how much you know about it. You're, you're cognitioning about your cognition. You're knowing about your knowing. This includes general knowledge about memory, such as knowing that recognition tests are easier than recall tests. It also encompasses knowledge about one's own memory, such as a student's ability to monitor whether they've studied enough for a test that's coming next week. Right, so the kid's starting to get, again, more and more aware of what they're aware of. And it's just kind of a signal of this developing aware awareness and consciousness and, and cognitive development. Okay, so if you remember before I had touched on this idea of how Piaget was working for Simon, right? So there's these two people, Alfred Bennett and Theophile Simon, um, two French guys, and Piaget was working for them, right? And he was like trying to figure out why, well, he was basically just recording the wrong answers people were giving on these as they were developing these IQ scales, and he started to notice that the kids of certain ages would give wrong answers in ways that were predictive of their age, and he used this to kind of develop the idea that they must be processing it differently then, and it seems like they're processing it differently depending on how old they are, and maybe that there's something more going on here, and later he has this concept of the stages of cognitive development, which is like one of the biggest ideas in developmental psych. So in 1904, the French Ministry of Education asked psychologist Alfred Bennett to devise a method of identifying children who are unable to learn in school. School officials wanted to reduce crowding by placing students who didn't benefit from regular classroom teaching in special schools. Bennett and his student Simon developed an intelligence test to meet this request. It consisted of 30 questions on topics ranging from the ability to touch one's ear to the ability to draw from memory to the ability to define abstract concepts. So they're trying to see how smart people are basically related to other people. Bennett developed this concept of mental age, an individual's level of mental development relative to others. Right, so like say I'm 41, right? Am I like mentally at a level that you would think for 41? Or am I like advanced for that? Or am I low for that? In later years, so if you, see, if you look there on the screen under where it says Bennett's test, the concept of mental age that's basically your score on the test. Chronological age is your actual age. So your IQ is your score on the test divided by your age times 100, right? So if, I if I'm 40, say I scored four, I'm, I'm 41, say I scored a 41 on the test, so it'd be 41 divided by 41 times 100, so my IQ would be 100, which is completely average. Okay, so let me just, Read this paragraph once more. So Bennett developed this concept of mental age, MA, as an individual's level of mental development relative to other people. A few years later in 1912, William Stern 
created this concept of an IQ or intelligence quotient, quotient, or Q just means like quotient or score. A person's mental age gets divided by their chronological age, then times by 100. So another way to say this is just IQ equals MA divided by CA times 100. If someone's mental age is similar to the chronological age, like I was saying, if I got 41 and I'm 41 years old, my IQ would be 100. If my mental age is above my chronological age, my IQ would be above 100. If it's below my chronological age, it'd be below 100. Okay, so the Stanford Binet test is interesting because it's, you can see how Binet's the same last name and then Stanford, meaning it's done at Stanford uh, University every year with like their students. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, do I have it actually written down? Yeah, by administering the test to large numbers of people of different ages, everyone from preschool to late adulthood, from different backgrounds, researchers have found that scores on the Stanford Binet test approximate normal distribution. A normal distribution is a symmetrical, is, is symmetrical with a majority of scores falling in the middle and the possible range with few scores towards the extremities. So you see that like depicted in that almost perfect bell curve, right? So what that means is you can see that as like a bell, right? The ringing part of the bell would be in the middle. And it's like the most common score is 100 and then within 100 and 115 is about another 34% and then from 100 to 85 is another 34%. So you see that like within 15 on either side of 100 is like 70% of people. And then there's a little bit that are more extreme and an even smaller amount that are more extreme. So that's that's what's called a normal distribution or a bell curve. And I also have just a link there if you're interested in doing it yourself. It's like I'm going to assume that all of you are, are above average IQs. And it's like if you're just interested, there's an online version there. In addition to uh, the Stanford Binet test, I wanted to show you a couple of other examples like the Wurschler scale. And this is really interesting in um, as an example of like some of you, if you've ever had a psychoed assessment, might have done this or something similar to this. Because, for example, with kids with learning disabilities, and I'll make this point a couple times maybe today, but I think it's really important to realize that people diagnosed with learning disabilities are often above average intelligence. And actually being low intelligence would disqualify you from a lot of diagnoses as learning disabilities. It, it's usually like a learning disability diagnosis is only given if other things are ruled out. And one of those things that needs to be ruled out is low IQ, right? So the reason I'm saying that it's important because some people that have maybe been diagnosed with learning disabilities thinks that they mean, think might think that it means they're not as smart or something. And by definition, it basically means the opposite that you're experiencing some kind of difficulty that's interfering with your ability to sort of express your inherent IQ, right? And maybe we find that it's it's related to issues with your working memory or issues with how you're making sense and understanding instructions like verbal comprehension, or maybe it's related to like processing speed. And if you had more time on the test, you'd do much better. And it's, you can see how like the time you take to do processing isn't necessarily the same thing as your, your base intelligence. And why why the scales like this is can be important is you see the word there at the start of the second point subscales, right? So instead of just giving you one score 
you're getting scores in these different areas, right? Maybe you score really well in verbal intelligence. Maybe you score really well in working memory, but really poorly in processing speed. Or maybe you really struggle putting those block designs together. And there's going to be all kinds of questions on this test. So maybe um, you notice that any of the ones that have pattern recognition elements, the kid really struggles with. And so it's, it, it gets more specific that where the actual issues and strengths and, and uh, challenges are by getting into these subscales. So Robert Sternberg, he's an interesting guy. We'll, he'll uh, pop in this course a few times. He had this idea of a triactic theory of intelligence, right? Triactic, just meaning like three core parts or that intelligence comes in three forms. So there's like this analytic kind of intelligence, which we kind of refer to as like school smarts, the ability to analyze and judge and evaluate and compare and contrast things. There's what you could consider to be more creative intelligence, like the ability to create or design or invent, originate, imagine, and then practical intelligence, which involves the ability to use and apply and implement and put ideas into practice. Sternberg says that children with different triactic patterns look different in school. Students with high analytic ability tend to be favored in conventional school settings. They often do well under direct instruction where the teacher lectures and gives students objective tests. They're often considered to be smart students who get good grades, who do well on traditional tests of intelligence and who later get admitted to competitive university programs. In contrast, kids who score high in creative intelligence are often not at the top of their class. Many teachers have specific expectations about how assignments should be done and creatively intelligent students may not conform to those expectations. Instead of giving conformist answers, they may give more unique answers that might get marked down. And while no teacher may actively want to be discouraging creativity, Sternberg stresses that too often a teacher's desire to increase students' knowledge actually suppresses the student's creative thinking. Like children in high creative intelligence, children who are high in practical intelligence often do not relate well to the demands of school. However, many of these children do well outside of the classroom. They may have excelled in, they may excel in social settings and with common sense. As adults, they may be successful as managers or entrepreneurs or politicians, in spite of having undistinguished school records, right? They might be like really good at like reading the room and talking to the room and they might be really successful people, just not not well designed for the, the curriculum-based school environment. So now Gardner has this other idea, right? Howard Gardner suggests there's eight types of kind of intelligence, or he'd say like frames of mind. Think about that as like a frame of a picture, a frame of a mind, meaning like, well, we express our intelligence in different ways. If you want to make this argument that people have different types of intelligence and expresses different ways, obviously there's differences. According to Gardner, everyone has all of these intelligences to different degrees, right? But depending on what we're more skilled at, we tend to like enjoy those things more, right? So if we're really verbally intelligent, we probably like, like podcasts more, like conversation more, like struggling with difficult conceptual ideas more. People learn the best when they can do it in ways that uses their strongest intelligences, right? So there's verbal intelligence, like the ability to think in words, using language to express meaning. It's easy to know what mathematical intelligence means, right? Obviously, like the ability to do math. 
and then spatial this is an interesting one like this is one my wife would be way better than me at like the ability to do directions and puzzles and the blocks and all that kind of stuff uh bodily kinetic intelligence like you see somebody that's like a really good athlete or a really good gymnast or a good dancer or something in their their movement their bodily kinesthetic knowledge their ability to manipulate objects and be physically adept skilled musical intelligence right like people's ability to whether it's to hear music or to produce music or to have that sensitivity to pitch melody and rhythm and tone and then intelligence both inter and intrapersonally so both in terms of inter so like my interpersonal skills is like my ability to relate to you and other people and then my intrapersonal means within myself so like my ability to understand when when i'm upset and getting getting too irritated or when i'm like causing part of the problem like how much am i able to understand myself and then eight there the naturalistic intelligence like my ability to observe patterns in nature and to understand nature so gardner says like instead of talking about it's like it's just a, a more complex way of viewing this that actually people have different ways of yeah, expressing their intelligence different frames of mind is his word this is uh the point i was making earlier and i think it's it's a really important point to stress that like children with learning disabilities are often of normal intelligence or, or above um and i just i don't know i always want to highlight that point because some people need to hear it and it's also important when you're working with people in the future if you're working with kids that have been diagnosed with learning disabilities that you realize that like you're working with somebody who if in the right situation could probably perform better than they're performing it's like a very interesting applied situation of the zpd idea right it's like how could you use it in learning disability scenarios that might actually you know i just kind of freestyled into this thought that might be an interesting thing for one of you to do in like a thesis or something because like how could how, how is zpd applicable for creating interventions to support kids with like specific learning disabilities because that makes complete sense to me kids with learning disabilities often have difficulty in at least one academic area and sometimes several um and that isn't diagnosable or attributable to a specific other thing right so if a person just had like really low iq that would be something that you'd say okay well they're not they're struggling in school because they're not understanding but for me to say that it, you have like a learning disability that's i have to first count that out right most learning disabilities are related to things like listening concentrating speaking and thinking which are which are obviously core academic skill foundational skills okay so this slide's going to be like just by its nature it's going to be like not satisfying enough because I'm going to just touch on these three huge huge topics um especially the last two are huge topics dyslexia is really interesting right dyslexia is um this this interference in largely in spelling and reading that affects people it's very visual interesting things with dyslexia though and i know you've all a lot of you have heard this about dyslexia is that dyslexia is very visual and why that's interesting is because a lot of what i'm seeing now is like dyslexia text like as a certain kinds of font 
and actually because so say if people with dyslexia i'm just gonna make this up but say that they're struggling telling the difference between whether it's an m or an n so what you can do is you can like i'm just gonna make this up a extra shade the one side so that it's like a little bit more obvious which one it is so you could just google what dyslexia font looks like i should have maybe had an image of it on this powerpoint but if that's a really smart way of seeing like okay this is how the person with dyslexia tends to make that mistake but if we shadow it a little bit more or if we like slight underline a little part of it then they don't make that mistake as much and like you're seeing how like tech is being used to help well people with dyslexia read autism spectrum disorder right so asd and this is this ranges from more severe uh, disorder called autistic disorder to more mild disorders referred to as Asperger's syndrome. Um, autism spectrum is characterized by problems often with social interaction, problems with verbal and nonverbal communication, problems with repetitive behavior. Children with these dis disorders often uh, show atypical responses to sensory experience to right, overstimulation. Uh, autism spectrum disorder can be detected in kids as young as one to three years old. And it's important to note with this as much as with anything that the experience of autism is very unique to the individual. And there's this is what the word spectrum means, that there's such like a huge range from people that are have such severe conditions that they almost need around the clock support to people that are maybe high functioning with Asperger's and holding down full time jobs and married. Right. So the the spectrum of experience is very different. And then that last one, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, which sometimes used to be called ADD, like just ADD. Um, and you can see that this is just characterized by things like difficulty paying attention, being super active, being impulsive, which are both related to difficulty paying attention. The majority of children with ADD fall into the third category of being okay so sorry that not just number three there i should read this depending on the characteristics a child with adhd displays they're often diagnosed as either adhd with predominantly inattention adhd with predominantly hyperactivity or impulsivity or adhd with inattention and hyperactivity which is what most kids get diagnosed with according to stats canada okay so Again, it's super important to remember this. People diagnosed with ADD are often above average intelligence. And if this has relevance to you, then it's about developing concentration and attention. And if it's about kids that you know, my best advice is get them in martial arts or get them into some kind of structured physical training program that's focused on discipline. It's like, cause you can absolutely improve attention. Okay. That was just a personal note. The development of brain imaging techniques has led to a better understanding of ADD. One study revealed that peak thickness of the cerebral cortex occurred three years later at almost 10 and a half years old in children with ADD than in children without ADD, where it peaks at about seven and a half years old. This delay was more predominant in the prefrontal region of the brain that's especially important in attention and planning. So think about that, planning around impulsivity. Another study found that development 
a delayed development in the brain's frontal lobe amongst children with ADD, which was likely caused uh, by, which likely is due to a degree, a delayed decrease in melanation. Yeah, researchers are also exploring the role that different neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin might play in ADD. It's long been thought that the dopamine transporter gene data one is involved in decreased cortical thickness in the prefrontal cortex of children with ADD. These delays in brain development just described are in areas linked to executive function. An increasing focus of interest in the study of children with ADD is their difficulty with tasks involving executive functioning, like paying attention and not being distracted, such as behavioral inhibition when necessary, the use of working memory, executive planning. Researchers have also uh, found deficits in theory of mind with children with ADD, an idea we'll talk about later, like this idea that you have an a mind and I have a mind and you can be thinking things that are different than me that that's not as good. Children diagnosed with ADD have an increased risk of school dropout, adolescence, pregnancy, substance use, antisocial behavior, especially if if they're not taught how to develop discipline. And I know when I say that if they're not taught discipline that sounds like I'm being judgy or something but I need to kind of stress this idea that like I basically did my PhD thesis on, on martial art participation and one of the big things that I've learned is that it's one of the best gifts you can give to a kid that's dealing with things like ADD especially is to get them involved in some kind of physical training practice whether it's neurofeedback or mindfulness or exercise or and I, I put like in, in addition to the potential medical or behavioral interventions like I'm not trying to say this as a replacement but it's we're we can't ignore the fact that attention can be developed even in people that struggle with attention so the other day I was walking down the street and there's this wug now there's another one of them there's two of them there's two finish my sentence there's two what two wugs in your mind did you think there's two wugs w-u-g-s and if you did why'd you think that right because you know your brain knows that usually when we pluralize something we add an s and this this is called well, this is how some of this gets developed, right? So part of our language development is the, phenol the um, phonology or like basically the sound system of language, like how we actually pronounce different sounds. And then some of it is how we morph those sounds in different situations, right? That we add this like S sound when we want to make things plural. Right before, between the ages of two and three, kids start to begin the transition from saying simple sentences to expressing things a single proposition to, to more complex sentences phonology refers to the sound system of language including the sounds and how they're used and how they may be combined during the preschool years most children gradually become more sensitive to the sounds of spoken word and become incredibly capable of producing all the sounds of their own language by their third birthday they can produce all the vowel sounds and most of the consonant sounds by the time children move beyond two word utterances they demonstrate a knowledge of morphology rules right like adding an s when it's plural morphology refers to the unit of meaning involved in word formation 
Children begin to use plural and possessive forms of nouns such as dogs and dogs. They put appropriate end like dogs as in D-O-G-S and then D-O-G S. They put appropriate endings on verbs. They use prepositions like in or on and articles like a uh or the. Some of the best evidence for changes in cognitives in children's use of more morphological rules occurs in the overgeneralization of rules, such as when a preschool child says their foots or their feet instead of their feet, or they said instead of they said they went to somewhere, they goaded somewhere. Like because you they you go somewhere and when you say it in past tense you usually put the ed at the end, but goaded doesn't make sense. In Burko's study of young children, um he saw that it was impressive of his, the words that they made up. Uh, what makes Burko's study impressive is that most of the words were made up for the experiment. Like there is, this is this wugs thing. There's the word wug doesn't exist, but if you thought wugs, it's interesting because even this made up word, you're able to apply the rule to. Children could not base the responses. Therefore, I'm remembering past instances of hearing the word. They could make plurals or past tense of words they'd never heard before. And this is proof that they knew morphological rules. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but basically just saying that like your ability to know that wugs, there's a wug and there's two of them. So they're wugs. That's you applying like a deep rule of English that like we tend to pluralize by adding an S or an ES. And so it allows you to morphologically like to morph means to change from one thing to another. You can use that in different scenarios. It becomes a rule of language. Look at this and you can just get these three definitions down and I'll, I'll show you, I'll kind of talk about this picture. This is one of these pictures that actually contains a lot. It actually contains a, a whole kind of understanding of how learning of language happens that first it's like the kind of the phonetics and the sounds and then it's the phonology or like, can you actually kind of start to make the th and the k and like the, the combined sounds like a ch or a th or whatever. Then it's, there's the morphology of like when to use those words and how to shape those words. And then there's the, the syntax or the way you actually combined words to form sentences. And then there's the semantics or the meaning of those words in those sentences and how the other um, words shapes the meaning. And then there's the pragmatism or the pragmatics of how to appropriately use the language. Preschool children learn to apply rules of syntax which is the way that words are combined to form acceptable phrases or sentences, right? Children begin showing a growing mastery of complex rules and how words should be ordered. As they get older, they have these gains also in their semantics, this aspect of language that refers to the meaning of words and sentences, also characteristic of early childhood. Vocabulary development is dramatic. Some experts have concluded that between 18 months and six years of age, children learn an average of about one word every waking hour. By the time they enter grade one, it's estimated that a child learns or knows about 14,000 words. Okay, so I have here six key principles for kids developing vocabulary. Okay, one thing that's important to remember, kids are going to learn the words they hear the most often, right? So because they're basically learning through exposure. They're going to be learning from what they hear the most often. Children learn words for things and events that interest them. It's interesting that there's this a common, what's called like an economy or an economicness to language, right? Like kids aren't learning fluff, meaningless words. They're learning water, drink. They're learning 
stuff that's kind of practically important to them. They learn words best in interactive contexts, right? Through like games and through singing and through back and forth play. Children learn words in contexts that are meaningful, right? So they'll, they're going to learn the word drink more when it's like associated with actually eating. It's like there's like a motivation to learn these words. Children learn words best when there's clear information about what words mean. So as the kid's learning more and more, you're teaching them more and more about, okay, well, drink, yeah, drink means drink water, but you can also drink coffee and drink milk. And you can use the, that word drink in more flexible settings than just drink water. Children learn words best when their grammar, when their grammar and vocabulary are considered, right? So as, as you're, as you're teaching them, you're teaching them, no, like you don't say footed, you say, you don't say footed, you say your feet, and you don't say you goed, you say you went. It's like there's there's ways there's times where you have to like correct that grammar and you're like basically teaching the kid how to how to talk and how to develop their vocabulary. Before learning to read, children learn to use language to talk about things that are not present. They learn what a word is. They learn how to recognize sounds and talk about them. Children who begin elementary school with a robust vocabulary have an advantage when it comes to learning how to read. The whole language approach stresses that reading instruction should be paralleled to a child's natural learning. In some whole language classes, beginning readers are taught to recognize whole words or even entire sentences and to use the context of what they're reading to guess at the meaning of words. Reading materials that support whole language approaches are whole and meaningful. That is, children are given material in its complete form, such as stories and poems, so that they learn to understand language's communicative functions. Reading is connecting with listening and skills. In contrast, the phonetic approach emphasizes, like, in, hopefully most of you learned phonetics, right? This idea of, like, how to sound out words. The phonetic approach emphasizes that reading instruction should teach basic rules for translating written symbols into sounds. Sounds. The phonetic center, or phonic centered reading uh, instruction should involve simplified materials. Only after after children, uh, only after a child's learned uh, the rules of language and understands phonemes to the alphabet, um, they should be then only after they basically know how to make all these sounds and know how to sound things out should they be given more complex reading materials like a book or a poem. Research suggests that kids can benefit from both approaches, but instruction on phonics needs to be emphasized. An increasing number of experts in the field of reading now conclude that direct instruction in phonics is a key aspect of learning to read. It's the most important thing with the developing student is that they learn how to develop their, they learn how to sound out words. Because once you learn to read, then all of a sudden, and what learning to read means basically is that you can look at the word and know what it means without having to do work. It's like, that's what being fluent means. It's like then all of a sudden reading becomes more fun and then you just open a whole world to the kid. We're gonna just wrap up with some key chapter points. I'm gonna do this a bit rapid fire, just as review. As children grow, they lose their top heavy appearance. Individual differences in growth are influenced by, by ethnic origin and nutrition. Right, so there is definitely differences between people, but there is more commonality than differences. A lot of these changes are universal, although there are differences depending on situational factors. Brain development includes myelination, synaptic pruning, and the increase of more localized activity. 
Development in the prefrontal cortex is especially critical for planning and other aspects of executive function. Individual differences in brain development are related to parenting quality and things like poverty, especially around nutrition. Gross and fine motor skills improve dramatically during childhood. Exercise and play are essential for optimal physical, cognitive, and social development. According to Piaget, in the pre-operational stage, children cannot yet perform operations. Pre-operational children can be characterized by egocentrism, animism, and a lack of understanding of con conservation that later is, called, is caused by centration and the lack of reversibility, right? Like the inability to pour the in your mind the orange juice back into the smaller cup and realize it's the same amount. By age seven, children enter the concrete operational stage. So this is what we're, this is kind of getting into the next point, right? The next step we're gonna take is by the time the kids kind of seven or so, they can start to solve those conversion problems. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in the next presentation. Vykovsky's theory represented a social constructivist approach to development. Vykovsky argued that it's important to discover the child's zone of proximal development to improve their learning. Information processing theorists focus on how attention, executive function, and memory change across childhood. Increases in knowledge and the use of strategy contribute to improved performance across childhood. And one more page. Cognitive development has implications for daily life, including autobiographical memory, things like eyewitness testimony, thinking about the future, theory of mind, critical thinking, creative thinking, metacognition, all improved during childhood. Researchers have yet to agree on the best definition of intelligence. Children belonging to special populations, such as children with autism or learning disabilities, may require special education or Sometimes it's it's just technolo technology, certain apps, certain kind of technological supports. And last slide, we're almost there. Young children increase their grasp of language rule system. Uh, in terms of phonology, children become more sensitive to the sounds of spoken language. Burko's classic study, that's the WUGS thing, demonstrated that young children understand morphological rules. Preschool children learn and apply rules of syntax, which involve how words should be ordered. In terms of semantics, vocabulary development increases dramatically during early childhood. 14 young children's conversational skills improve by early childhood. And finally, early precursors of literacy and academic success develop in early childhood. You're an awesome class. I love teaching you and hope you're doing well. Your projects were awesome. I'll, I'll make a point about that somewhere else, but um, thanks for being an awesome class. Chapter 6 presentation coming soon. Cheers.